0: My name is Roly Porter, Um, I'm based in Bristol in the UK, I'm a composer, sound designer and I'm visiting RMC in Copenhagen for a collaborative project with some of the students here. The way they've been working uh, is split up into three groups and we've been trying to rotate every couple of hours unless anybody has wanted to pursue a particular idea a bit longer. And it's just sharing, they're each very different. In fact, there's only one um, kind of conventional instrumentalist and the rest are using uh, Ableton and electronic sound design tools. But actually, even though they're using the same tools, their identity is very, very different. And I think people have just been exchanging ideas and exchanging techniques and so demonstrating something Uh, We did a series of recordings and then each individually processing those things and it's strange that a lot of the time I worry that uh, the availability of this technology means that um, we're all sort of being funneled together but actually I think the truth is the opposite. It's incredible to see even just in eight people using the same software that that sense of identity and the difference is very very strong. I've been writing down more, of what they're doing than the other way around. biggest influences are trying to replicate um, sounds or emotions that you experience but in um, in a form that fits into the kind of musical narrative that I'm working on at the time so you know you hear things in the world I don't use a huge amount of field recordings but sometimes you hear things in the natural world and it's easy to sort of remember uh, sorry easy to forget as doesn't need to be any separation between music that you hear and sound that you hear. Some of the sonic experiences, I mean obvious examples of like standing in a thunderstorm. These are incredible sound experiences. And that doesn't need to be just because it doesn't have a melodic content or whatever. That can be the exact same experience as, you know, going to a festival or experiencing. Sound shouldn't necessarily need to be divided into these kind of categories and I think a lot of elements the freedom that I have now in this type of music is amazing you can develop those kind of things where it doesn't necessarily need to be driven by rhythm or driven by music and as long as I'm not taking any direct influence from you know literally taking ideas and copying them then I think the range of influences can basically be anything and you're just translating it into the form that you know I think the interesting thing about um, influences uh, post writing beat based music, when you're writing beat music or you, and you're more part of a collective or part of a particular sound or movement, I say it's almost critical to be as influenced as possible for the whole community to be driven in together and to react to each other. And the, as a result, the genre tends to move a lot faster um, and progress a lot faster. Uh, since stopping that kind of music, it's been very important to me to receive almost no influence from my contemporaries at all, because it's very difficult to to not uh, follow other people's sounds. It's very difficult to not, even subconsciously, to embody ideas of sound design or of pacing or of composition. So since writing this type of music, this solo project, all of my influences have been from completely different um, things, often not, not necessarily musical. Um, and if they are musical, then they're more likely to be from different folk traditions or classical music or you know, early ambient electronic music. Sci-fi books, films um, are obviously a massive influence, uh, but they're a big influence on my sort of philosophical or worldview anyway. The transition between sound design and cinema before, you know, say, Star Wars and Blade Runner, there's, there's such massive leaps in sound. And the first time I saw Interstellar in the cinema, the sound design was incredible. The score, whatever you feel about Zimmer was amazing. The mix was incredible, but it wasn't, it was a continuation of an idea. But the first time I saw Blade Runner as a kid, that's that's a transition from none of those ideas existing. Sonically the synthesizers the lighting the everything to all of those ideas (laughs) existing and now we just develop on those ideas 2001 you can watch it. I don't know. I mean my way we watch it at least once a year and it's still conceptually the way that sound is used and approached There are some things that were so perfectly realized like the monolith for example or the tracker sound in the beeper in alien Those are the sounds that those things make from from then on. I think since um, writing music myself, since the beginning of the solo project, a lot of the album projects and a lot of the music has been shaped by conceptual ideas and has had a narrative and uh, there's lots of reasons why I do that. And there's lots of advantages to it but there's also disadvantages in that it um tends to sort of give people the impression that they're supposed to be following a particular story or supposed to be in a particular mindset or following a certain thing so if i say this album is about uh i don't know the star for example is the, the second album but people may not enjoy thinking about space in the way that i do so i think being less prescriptive about what the intention of music is and just allowing the narrative to shape your own ideas is the kind of position that i'm at now so i would say that i'm um, the main goal of everything overall if there were one word one of those sort of genre terms to describe it is um trying to explore uh the thinking space for people trying to create as a three-dimensional a sonic environment with as much dynamic range and as much depth and width as possible to allow people to enter the sort of state where they're allowed to not allowed but where they're enabled to think about whatever it is that they particularly want to You know work through at that time. So for me Listening to music is the best thinking time the best sort of meditative time and um, I don't meditate um, or follow any of those kind of practices but when I'm in a concert or a club venue that's when most of the sort of the most productive thought processes occur and it really is dependent on the music to create that sort of atmosphere where your brain is half engaged by sound but half allowed to follow its own pathways. So for me that really is the key and one of the main reasons I moved away from beat based music was to create that sort of as wide open an atmosphere as possible to allow people to follow their own sort of thought process. For 3rd Law, I had to write um, a kind of short narrative, and then I didn't publish it or it wasn't attached to the album in any way, but I realised that from that point on, it's basically, I can't do anything without that, because it's effectively like scoring a film, but just with the freedom to decide the length of the scenes and and the arc of the narrative yourself. I think in... I don't know how to go back to just writing sound for sound's sake. So this, the latest album, again, um, was a similar process. It was inspired by burial sites in uh, southwest England. And then I wrote this idea about these um, Neolithic burial rituals. And that led to the whole sound of the album and to the type of things that I was researching and to the type of singing and the sound of the whole album so yeah i have to i have to write a story <laughs> having an emotional purpose behind music is important, especially important in electronic music because so much of the focus is on technology and the technological pursuit, which I'm fascinated as well. But that can become an end in itself, whereas really it should be the means to to the end. So if you have an emotional goal, or as you put it, a a romantic quest, (laughs) then the the technology is just a means to an end, um, and you keep the sort of uh, philosophical pursuit separate from that. The majority of my sound design uh, or instrument creation is starting with the recording. Um, I don't do much kind of pure synthesis. Whether it's me or somebody else depends on whether it needs to sound good (laughs) or whether it needs to. um, But I have to say, even if I use other players and record uh, conventional lines, I still find that over the process, I mean this album's taken over two years and any melodic aspect or rhythmic aspect, I'm probably going to be bored of it within about three weeks so the process is more about dissembling those recordings than than writing conventional notation and then having it recorded and then putting it on the track. If you see what I mean, It's very rare that a recording will be used in its entirety as opposed to turned into an instrument and then reprocessed. And actually the relationship between music theory and composition is an ongoing battle. And it goes in kind of year or two year cycles where I feel that it would be beneficial to invest time in music theory and in understanding of um, different forms of compositional technique. And then as soon as I do, I find that it takes me into a less comfortable place where I get a lot more concerned about the ownership of uh, ideas and of musical ideas and I think, um, you know, if you look through the history of classical music, there's so much melodic content has been explored. That when you're working from a purely sound design point of view if you make a recording and allow the kind of harmonic or rhythmical content to come out of those recordings or those sound design processes it's a sense of um, there's a sense of automation in it which i find makes me more comfortable than I, hang on i'm not explaining this very well it's difficult to think about all i know is that the relationship between um, Music theory and composition is one that I haven't really resolved, but the more I learn about theory, the less comfortable I become. I think, basically, the problem is that you have a process of creation, of sonic creation, that cannot be replicated live. So, each of the sounds and even the structure in the the piece, the the melody for want of a better word, they've just taken so long. Um, And the period of kind of editing and discarding As I say, in this case, it was two years, and the folder is just hundreds and hundreds of gig of discarded sounds that leaves this kind of, whatever the carcass that's left is. So then you're left with two choices. You basically have the choice of playback, or you have the choice of taking these elements and creating a new instrument, which allows you to play back. (laughs) It's It's still playback, but it's playback so then you need to think to yourself, well, what actually, what is, uh, what, is, what is it that I want to happen live? And what you want is two things. Firstly, absolute maximum quality of Sonic experience. So that would suggest that you just put a CD on of your carefully crafted studio project. But obviously that's, that only answers that first problem. The second problem is that you want some kind of engagement for yourself and for the audience. So from a personal point of view, I want the experience of playing in different environments and in a big sound system to be exciting and to be rewarding and to lead into new kinds of sonic possibilities. And from an audience point of view, they want to see something interesting happening. When it's an AV project, my kind of my feeling with that is that the primary concern should be the sound and the vision. So I don't like, with the current AV project that we have, I don't want to stand in front of the screen in a conventional arrangement. You know, we spent, again, almost two years making the film. It's beautiful, it's a cinematic experience, and I think that should be the focus. And I'm not doing anything interesting. If I'm not playing it with a video or an AV project, then I'll try to do some instrument design that means that at least you know, at least 50% of the piece can be controlled, improvised or performed live in some way. So I've got a project with UE in Bristol University, developing um, a couple of different interfaces for control surfaces, um, which is quite exciting. And again, that's led to a lot of useful instrument design in the studio. But it really is a difficult challenge. The how to recreate it live, not not how maybe, but why? Why would I do, you know, a certain thing? Are you doing it because you're nervous that there's some kind of, um, you know, expectation? And I think the answer is you just have to focus on what is the absolute best outcome here—either research or sonic experience—or what's the what's the best outcome going to be? I, I really love the technological side of this um, stuff and I'd happily spend a couple of years just investigating new you know, software and hardware devices and exploring them. I think primarily um, for most of the kind of uh, lead instrument type, uh, if, it's difficult because I try not to have conventional structure so there aren't ways of saying but but I would say a lot of the instruments um, I use Omnisphere a lot of the time I think that's an incredible synth and because the majority of what I do is based on recordings um, and the sample playback and the granular playback in it is really great so I would say that's a sort of primary sample based software instrument I use a lot of hardware um, but actually, over the last year or so, I've stopped using modular stuff and got rid of all my modules. I felt that was a bit of a diversion. Um, it's difficult to. The advantage of that kind of synthesis and using modules, especially, is that it gives you a really great understanding of some of the fundamentals of sound, but it's um, often a bit of a wormhole. I think. It's difficult to know. I suppose for sound design, I try to. The majority of my sort of attempts over the last couple of years have been about combining the characteristics of sound, so cross synthesis and convolution type processes. So, uh, Max and Reactor um, get used quite a lot. I really love the idea of um, imparting the characteristics of one sound upon another. So. Um, I don't particularly want to hear um, conventional instrumentation in my music. I don't want it to be recognizable that it's a double bass or string instrument or even voices. And at the same time, I don't want it to be prescriptively uh, field recordings. So, for example, if you can have, I don't know, a double bass made out of the sound of rocks, then I'm happy. Um, but the problem with a lot of those digital processes is the, you begin to really recognize the artifacts in some of the processing. So, you know, everybody's used to the sound of time stretching and, and convolution now, and or even some cross census And a lot of the AI production that's happening at the minute has these same digital artifacts. So, I still, it's very important to me that the the finished sound is still very organic, that it has the kind of uh, texture or tonality of live instrumentation. Um, I don't consider that what I'm creating is a digital product, even though it undoubtedly is. Vex is a project that I started with Jamie Teasdale. Um, it was primarily his idea in the beginning. Um, the name and the kind of shape of it was his idea. Uh, Jamie now works as Kudo and has released some incredible music. Severant, still one of my favorite albums. I think it was a shame that, it, that we parted ways uh, when we did, but if you listen to both of our output, I suppose Third Law by me and Severant by him would be the kind of most distinctive solo ideas and it's quite clear where our kind of differences and where our strengths lay Um, I would love to revisit that project one day and maybe we will but I suppose one of my uh, the track nails Jamie wrote the majority of nails and I was always really cross about that because I really felt like I could have done and he just did such a great job of it Um, I suppose the track from vexed uh, that most represents where I was going in the solo project was Remains of the Day which is sort of beatless, um, one of our first attempts uh, into sort of beatless music. Even in the very beginning that we both had these um, ideas that we wanted to explore of kind of sound, soundtrack, cinematic music which we both went on to pursue. Jungle in the early days kind of, maybe more before its transition into drum bass and before it became very popularised, it just had a it was the first time I'd observed that music could be a completely consuming uh and deadly serious pursuit <laughs> for your whole life. And I think maybe if you grew up in classical music and your training, then those kind of things would be taken for granted. But looking at electronic music and then just seeing that it had this um you know, there was no room for no room for fun is the wrong way to put it, but it was but it was, yeah, serious thing. The blue note we started going to for the Sunday sessions, the Metalhead sessions, which was absolutely the kind of defining in the same way that two thousand and one or Blade Runner defined the kind of conceptual arc of my life. I would say that defined the Sonic arc. That, along with sound system, club-based sound system music, because it had a sense of um, complete freedom about what would happen musically, but about this extraordinary forward energy. I felt that it had that sense of freedom. It felt like it was like our jazz, and it just was extraordinary. Even though a lot of it has aged quite badly, especially the use of samples or, or um, I don't know, certain aspects of kind of club culture of the time seem a little bit dated, but there's still the, there's something about the coldness of it and the, um, and something about the sort of clinical nature of it, electronic futurism in some, in some way that hasn't been realized, again I don't think, in another genre. You know, I don't really work on kind of conventional loop based music anymore, but if you think back of early sort of uh you know tributaries of hip hop like d j. Crush or you know those kind of early trip hop type things, you listen back now and it's ten minutes of just the, the beat doesn't not even there's no edit at all and we used to that used to we used to be obsessed with that, you know that kind of thing. Is that about drugs, is it about being younger, is it just the first time that you've heard instrumental music in that way? I don't know, but all I know is that over time, something's changed and I need a level of kind of complexity and a level of narrative now. It's easy to make social guesses about drugs and the relationship with clubbing and how that evolved and the you know party scene, free party scene but it's very difficult to know how much of that drove the actual sonic identity of the music um, I don't know how my relationship over time with my listening and my engagement with music has changed or whether different aspects not just about drugs but about growing older or having children or any of those things I still listen to music with the same passion but is it the same intensity and am I trying to solve the same problems?